Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This week, we're examining the outlook for global markets at a time of severe uncertainty. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. Inflation and maybe even stagflation are preoccupying investors' minds right now, but advisors and their clients also have to contend with pandemic uncertainty, interest rate risk, and the ever-present impact of technological change on portfolios. But what are the options and possible safe harbours for clients at this time? Joining me to discuss the topic are Simon King, Chief Investment Officer at Vermeer Partners, Simon Edelston, Global Equity Fund Manager at Artemis, and Stephen Bell, Portfolio Manager and Chief Economist at BMO Global Asset Management. Thank you all for joining me today. Um, Simon King, if we if we start with you, given the unusual nature of the pandemic-induced recession and recovery, how confident can we be on a global basis that economies and asset prices will react as they usually do in periods of economic recovery when exiting recessions? Thank you, David. Um, in short, not very. Um, we believe we're at a very different starting point than we've been in previous cycles. Um, we've come out of this unprecedented period from sort of 2008 to 2020, where you've had asset classes being very highly, highly correlated. Um, you could argue, you know, we have a lucky generation of investors who've invested as long as they've been invested in some sort of market, have tended to make that make money. So trying to anticipate the behaviour of those is going to be very difficult. If you then throw into the equation that, again, we're coming out of this unprecedented period of quantitative easing, um, the differences that COVID is going to make in the medium and longer terms in terms of supply and demand, which I'm sure we'll come to, uh, and indeed, indeed inflation, which you mentioned in your preamble there. Um, so our view as we move into undoubtedly a period of you know tapering and interest rate rises, uh, there are going to be many bubbles that will be burst. Uh, we just don't know which ones they are or, or indeed when that's going to occur. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, uh, from an economics point of view and, and wearing your economist hat, how, how have you... Um, how does one view economic data right now? So so many uh, data points seem extreme or seem like outliers, but do we know where the mean is yet? Can can we understand that? Do we know what, what's an economic cycle in the world of monetary policy as it is? Well, clearly the pandemic was a collapse in supply and demand that is unprecedented in peacetime. And the recovery, you know, both the recession and the recovery have been uh, historically very sharp. Um, when it comes to how asset prices will react, in one sense, it's the same. What we look for in the stock market is for earnings and the discount rate by which you bring those back to present value, as well as sustainability, inflation, merge policy outlook. Um, it's just that we have had a unique, again, in peacetime, change in supply. So we have a very far from full recovery in employment, still five million short of uh, the pre-COVID level of employment in the United States, but there are labour shortages. Uh, we have shortages all over the place, and that's due to the incredible turmoil that's been occasioned by uh, by, the, by this pandemic, the speed of the recovery caught people out. 
Um, and of course, we now find ourselves um, analyzing medical data in a way that we never did before. And um, I was at a dinner last night where we were discussing that epidemiologists' job is to make economic forecasters look, uh, look good. Um, and we recognize that their forecasts are pretty inaccurate. Great. Well, Simon Edelston, as a, an equity guy, um, you probably have fewer options than, than Simon King as Chief Investment Officer. He can go into other asset classes, etc. And uh, Stephen can be the economic forecaster who can, uh, you know, um, who can who can do that stuff. But as the equity guy, you've only got you've only got one one game in town to, to play with. How, how how do you think about it right now? Uh, yeah. Well, from a global equity point of view, um, there have been some classic recovery features i suppose you'd say dated back to when the vaccines came out and when president biden got elected so both last november and you had a fairly classic period of recovery stocks doing their recovery thing it was hard for them not to uh if you are a restaurant or pub company a hotel company and you you went from having no customers and closed to open you're going to see your earnings going up pretty fast uh, but that was a feature of the first quarter um the odd thing from an equity um equity fund manager's point of view um, is an economic point. We're still very, very early in a recovery. The recovery has been reasonably vigorous. Um, but normally in a recession, you have plenty of what Keynes used to call excess capacity left over. You didn't normally get inflationary pressures. What, what are we now? 18 months into a recovery. So unfortunately, from what we're looking at at the moment, the recovery is starting to peter out a little bit in terms of vigor. Um, more so in Europe and Asia, perhaps. China's had a, 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 a significant slowdown than America, which seems to be pretty good. And we're facing inflationary pressures, energy prices, labor pressures, incredibly early in the recovery. So, so now you've got to judge how much recovery you're going to get and whether you're going to get paid for it in terms of whether those extra sales are going to get eaten up by uh, cost pressures on businesses. Uh, and that's much, much earlier in the cycle than it would be in a classic cycle. Thank you. And Simon, we'll, we'll, Simon Edelson, we'll stick with you for the, the next uh, question as well. Do you regard inflation as the biggest threat to equity market returns uh, in the next year or two? Uh, well, uh, following very naturally from my last month, uh, absolutely. But you can pick your stocks. So if you're in a comp if you're in a business which has got a lot of labour input, a lot of um, a lot of fuel input into it. Um, an equity analyst has got to do a very careful calculation of whether those cost pressures are going to be bigger or smaller or the same as any recovery you see. Um, but there are loads of other companies out there which just don't have those issues. Uh, now, rather boringly for people who follow equities over the last 12 years, the companies which classically don't have particularly big energy costs, particularly big labor costs, are the same technology shares which have done most of the running in the stock market for the last 12 years. Uh, it's not an answer a lot of people want to have. A lot of people want to say, oh, this is a time where you sell all those stocks that have done well the last 12 years and you go off into um, more cyclical stocks, what some people call value stocks, though that's a very loosely, uh, loosely used term. But one can look at some of the stocks which have been left behind by the market, look at the challenges on the inflation front and actually get more worried about them now. Weak companies with a lot of debt, a lot of input cost pressures. They're probably not going to see their, their earnings recover or their cash flows recover. And so um, they may look much cheaper, uh, but for, for in my, our opinion anyway, 
uh, that's not going to be the easy way to make money over the next few years because we could be facing inflation without that bigger without that bigger recovery driver. That's the problem. And that's what's really changed since the spring. In the spring, we were looking at the recovery producing the inflation. Now it looks like the inflation's here, but it's not being produced by the recovery. It's being produced by you know, us underpaying uh, truck drivers for decades, for instance. You know, this is a global phenomenon. This is not just a UK phenomenon. We've got port um, congestion in almost every country in the world. We've got supply tr uh, chain disruption almost everywhere. Um, and on the other hand, I'll, I'll just say, and it's also quite a good thing that less well-paid people, younger people also are going to get a pay rise. You know, it's been long overdue. So there are good points as well as bad points, but one does have to duck and weave Pick your stocks, pick your areas to invest in very carefully. Thank you. Um, Simon King, as Chief Investment Officer, is obviously an asset allocator. You, you don't have to like equities. Um, but uh, what do you regard as the biggest threat across all of the um, the different asset classes? Is, is inflation the, the thing that keeps you awake at night? Uh, yes, most definitely. Um, I'd certainly agree with everything that Simon said there in terms of your sort of ability to stock pick within the equity space. And as in, you know, any phase of economic development, there'll be winners and losers. Uh, obviously, it's all of our collective jobs to try and find those winners. Uh, but yeah, I mean, inflation is our biggest concern at the moment. It's going to force people to focus on, you know, real rates of return, uh, which is something they've not had to do for, you know, some time. Uh, we think inflation is much worse, even as we speak, and it's going to deteriorate quicker until higher levels uh, and certainly the market and, and more importantly, um, central banks and politicians think at the moment uh, it's going to have pretty big socio and economic impact in our view because of that, the scale of that. Um, you know, one of the issues of the last decade is that, you know, the wealth divergence has increased uh, and inflation is going to only make that situation worse. Uh, we're also faced with a problem that both consumers and sort of market participants have very little experience of inflation. You have to go back so far for people to actually remember the true effects of it, you know, literally into the 1970s. Uh, that I think, again, it's going to be difficult for us to anticipate how, you know, how people react to it. Uh, we, we, we get very frustrated about this whole transitory versus permanent argument. To us, it's irrelevant. As I said, it's here right now. It's major and it's making people poorer on a daily basis at quite a quick rate. Um, and then the, you know, the last point I would make is it's a nightmare for policymakers, in our view, uh, because it's injected another sort of unknown variable into a situation which they're already struggling with. So it's going to make it very difficult as they start to taper, as they start to raise, raise rates to really understand, you know, the impact of the policy actions they're making. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, um, in, in, can one, um, given, you know, all we've said about the unusual nature of the recovery and given how hard it is to measure, uh, for example, the in, impact of technological change on, on a wider economy, is inflation, is the inflation picture as clear cut as perhaps it, it looks now in terms of uh, being on the supply side more than the demand side? And is it as big a threat as maybe many market participants are pricing? 
Well, I think it is a threat. It's very obvious. And um, we see this most clearly in the United States, where we had a first wave of bottleneck pressures that the Federal Reserve could argue were temporary, cars being the obvious one, which fed through to rental prices, car rental prices. But it's lasted a lot longer, even in that, those sectors than expected. Transport costs, we, we measure these things quite easily. But we're now getting a second wave, which is far more persistent, which is rents, shelter, uh, measured um, in a way that makes them persistent. But in a, at a very simple level, if the market rate for rent doubled today, it would take a year if everyone had a one-year lease before rents went up. Um, so it's, it's clearly persistent for all kinds of reasons. And the second one is wages. It's very hard to measure wages when compositional effects are powerful. And they're never more powerful than they are at the moment, where, you know, in the United States, 20 million people got fired and they're being rehired. And of course, they tend to be lower paid and that affects the uh, average. So there's a, a measure that the Atlanta Fed do that basically uh, adjusts for all that, or is rather not affected by them. And that's accelerated. And that's part of the reason why the Fed have done a swerve in terms of their, oh, it's transitory, oh, it's transitory, oh, it's not. And the only thing that I would add to that is, um, whilst I do see inflation as a threat, the bigger threat to me is real interest rates. Uh, we've got this extraordinary situation where 10-year real interest rates in the United States, as measured by TIPS, are minus 1% at a time when the government deficit is the biggest it's been in peacetime and shows no sign of, uh, of being reined in as we're discussing budget bills you know, in, in Washington at the moment. So here we have this global synchronized fiscal uh, boom, an economic recovery, and real interest rates apparently negative. Uh, it's a curious combination. And to go back to um, Simon Edelson's very well-argued point about tech companies not having uh, much exposure to energy prices or wage costs, they certainly have exposure to higher real interest rates because they are, by definition, stocks that return earnings in the future. And if you discount something that's going up in line inflation by a negative number, you get a very good valuation. And I think we have to recognize that um, that is a threat. If that minus one were to become plus one, which still wouldn't be outrageous, uh, that would be quite a big change in how you value uh, all assets, actually. Well, most assets, but certainly the ones with uh, much longer duration. So I think it's a combination. And they're just, and they're just the known threats. Never mind, you know, the virus, which we talk about. There's always, always something else. The thing that really stymies a market tends to be something that we didn't see. Um, but for the things we know, the known unknowns, they're the, they're the two, I think. Thank you. Um, Simon King, um, I'm coming to you first on this question because, again, you're an asset allocator, a multi-asset um, person. Uh, given the unprecedented nature and extent of the monetary policy response but to the pandemic crisis, but actually to the global financial crisis as well. Um, do we need to think differently about risk and how to price risk in, in a world where bond yields have been so low or interest rates are at a 5,000-year low, if you want to call it that? And actually, even if interest rates go up next month, they'd still, within the margin of error, be at a 5,000-year low. I mean, I think in terms of our actual assessment of risk, that, you know, they I mean, theoretically, there should be no change in that markets should have been doing that over the previous 10 or 15 years, as I say, which has been an unusual period. Um, however, I mean, I think there's plenty of evidence that the market overall has simply become too sanguine 
um, lazy, relaxed. You can pick your your, you know, your own adjective, um, but uh, certainly we think risk has been underestimated um, and certainly underpriced uh, for some time. Um, so, I mean, the, the problem will be, as I say, this is uncharted territory for everybody. I mean, there is no dummy's guide to QE tapering and r- simultaneous rate, rate rises because we've never had to do it before. Um, you know, and as I mentioned before, there are going to be sorts, all sorts of unintended consequences, uh, well, you know, which we'll only see as, as, as we are uh, unwind. Um, but, I mean, uh, you know, um, our hope is that at least uh, central governments start to get on with, on with it. There's been a lot of talk. Um, and as I said earlier, inflation won't help in them making the decisions to finally start tapering. You know, but in our view, you can't keep feeding the junkie methadone forever. You've got to get him off it at some point. Thank you for that, Simon. I think that's going to be in the headline when this gets published. Um, <laughs> and that's and that's unusual because normally it's Simon Edelston that produces the, the headline line for me. But um He's got time. <laughs> uh Stephen, we'll we'll uh, we'll come to you for I mean that question. How does one think about risk at a portfolio level? in a world where we have monetary policy doing what it's doing you've talked about the discount rate for example it's never been it's never been that low before does one need to think about risk in a different way well i've got a view about risk which is the biggest mistake you can make is not to try and measure your risk and the second biggest mistake is to believe the measure once you've got it and um, i have lots of measures of risk for my own portfolio and I plot time series for that measure and it moves around all over the place. So even if you use the same risk engine, it gives a different answer every day. And that's not to even think about the risk, the whole risk world changing. Um, And obviously we've had a massive change over time in the structure of economies and the international relations of economies, the central bank reaction function, the fiscal reaction function, many of these things change. And you just have to recognize that um, you just have to make your best effort to measuring risk and you'll never get the right answer. Just have to keep thinking about it. And ultimately, uh, I, I'm fortunate that I deal in highly liquid markets. I'm not in a situation where my market, although it, it didn't, actually the, some of the markets nearly froze, um, uh, even the most liquid ones. But generally speaking, if you can um, liquidate your portfolio relatively quickly, then your P&L is your risk measure. And when that starts going south, you need to get very scared. So, yes, the world has changed. Yes, uh, the risks are different. But I don't think that the world has changed in a completely dramatic way any more than it was in the global financial crisis, which I, in my um, rather long career, it was the biggest uh, change in the world when banks were going bust and uh, top names, the very best of names, were being turned down in the repo market. That was a world where I really didn't expect to see. And, of course, this is another world which is dramatically different. Um, But it's just, uh, you know, every few decades the world changed. I mean, the inflation problem we have uh, in prospect is tiny compared with the 70s, where, again, things changed in a way that uh, people had had never seen at the global level before. Obviously, we've had hyperinflations, but we haven't had the industrialized world experiencing inflation that they did in the 1970s. So every few decades is a completely unprecedented shock that we have to grapple with. Thank you. Uh, Simon Edelston, within the context of the equity portfolios that you run, and 
do you have do, do you think about risk differently what constitutes a, um, a higher risk uh, equity position now is that is that different to what it might have been um, when when you started your your career right Stephen mentioned he's had rather a long career I, I think it's fair to say you've had a you, you didn't start yesterday either <laughs> uh, no I'm afraid not um, so uh, uh, yes a few people have uh, mentioned how one has to think back to um, or have how few people may have experienced um, inflation and the real cost of it um, so uh, I think it's important to get the uh, on the one hand to remember how few people are experienced uh, or have had recent experience of these sorts of conditions and then secondly but to get in context quite how big they are we are talking about 5% inflation today in America, or five and a bit, that people are worried might go up to, what, six, seven, eight? Um, yeah, when I started, I think inflation was 13 or 14% in the UK, having been over 20. So, you know, it's not quite that. The trouble is, um, as, as both Simon King and Stephen have referred to, we start from this bizarre situation that has only turned up in the last 10 years, where interest rates are miles below the level of inflation. So, the, the bond yield is the worry. The bond yield is where it is as a leftover from the 2008 financial crisis. It's been put there to reflect where central banks want the bond yield to be. And it is not there to reward savers for or compensate savers for inflation. So are there any lessons that we can learn about what happens when, when the central banks try to start removing the methadone? Um, there, there, are, <laughs> there are very few... I'm afraid that the one great example is the Japanese who started their QE 20 years, well, 10 years before everyone else because they had a financial crisis in the late 90s. And some would say that the Japanese have tried to reduce QE now three or four times in the last 20 years and have always given up. The methadone has always gone back. Whenever they try to put it out of the economy, they end up with deflation, which is hardly a problem at the moment, as we said. Uh, but actually also the financial markets just panic. Give them a kicking and, and and they retreat and they've now got they've had recently higher levels of qe than they've ever had in 20 years uh, and they didn't have a bad financial crisis by the way not compared with the uk and america in terms of banks blowing up um so we're we're in for this period we've been told that the uh, qe the tapering is going to happen in america um i think between here and february we'll be able to see how the markets react i mean the mar the bond market knows it's it's coming, and 10-year bond yields in America have gone from, oh, 126 to 178 in a month. I mean, it's hardly headline news, and it hasn't bothered the equity market. But from an equity person's point of view, yeah, I'm not going to pretend that highly priced stocks trading on DCFs will not take a wobble at this point. Uh, and certainly, I think that some of the stocks whose profits are all five, 10 years in the future uh, are going to see severe pressure in their, in their ratings. The funny thing about some of the biggest tech stocks is they've actually caught up. Their cash flows have caught up um, with their share prices in recent years. They have actually grown pretty fast. Uh, so companies like Microsoft and uh, Google these days, they have PEs. They may not have yields. They may not pay tax, but they do actually have PEs. So it's, it's not like they're just trading on earnings decades out. Um, uh, but there are plenty of other stocks which can get through this period. But, yeah, I mean, s safety first, absolutely, uh, in an equity portfolio over the next over the next six months, in my view. Thank you. Um, 
Simon King, um, well, you've both, both yourself and Simon Elliston have referred to uh, the big tech stocks and the business models they have and the way those things have traditionally grown, uh, which involves hiring more people rather than buying more plant and machinery or opening more factories, for example. Um, does that different business model, that different way of expanding mean that traditional valuation metrics uh, such as price earnings uh, may be less valid for big tech than uh, than companies that were the biggest companies of the past. For example, when Henry Ford wanted to expand his car making empire, he had to open a factory and buy loads of machinery. That goes, that gets depreciated in accounts over a number of years. When Google want to expand, they hire a lot of tech people and that 100% of the cost goes onto the P&L straight away which means that they look maybe slightly less profitable than they are. Is that something that we need to think, that, does that mean that valuation metrics don't work? Um, simple answer, no. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with the valuation metrics. The, the majority of the market employs. Um, the issue is that most people don't listen to the output um, and choose to you know, ignore the warning signals. So I don't think it's a case that we're in this sort of new paradigm or it's different this time round, you know, which is the um, usual refrain from the, you know, the, the mega bulls in the market. And, um, you know, particularly equities, but you, know, you can employ the same techniques across other asset classes. I mean, it's still about profit. It's still about returns and it's still about cash flow. I mean, those are the key issues. I mean, on, on tech in particular, I mean, I think unfortunately the market tends to, Put everything in one large bucket and you know there are two very different different types of big tech there are the stocks that simon mentioned there uh, you know they, I mean, in our view these are becoming the new blue chips because as of yet we've been unable to uh, actually come up with a set of the market conditions in which they underperform so i mean actually you know financially and operationally and as simon said i mean they've grown stratospherically their cash flows have indeed grown into their ratings and you could argue have gone past them. So we are not particularly concerned about those. However, at the other end of the um, spectrum, we are very concerned about things that have literally infinite valuations, very, very high actual valuations in terms of market cap, and particularly those those companies that are still loss-making. The big difference, you know, when you compare this tech rally to, you know, 2000, which uh, I am an old old enough, unfortunately, to have been around for, um, is the market's propensity to fund losses. It didn't happen in 2000, which is why the, the fall was so sharp. This time round, very, very large losses have been funded by various participants. Um, if we do move into a tapering general lessening of liquidity, deleveraging, call it what you will, uh, then I think these models are going to be severely tested. Um, and in our view, there will be, you know, a number of zeros around in that in that sector. So people are going to lose a lot of money from this point. In our view, that's very healthy for the market. Uh, you know, we need to get back to sorting the wheat, wheat from the chaff. Uh, you know, this rising tide we have where, you know, it's literally carried all ships, um, is long, long overdue a correction in our view. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, uh, are we in this new paradigm? Do we do we think about things um, differently because the business models are so different, because it's it's all technology and, and the old rules don't apply? 
I mean, it's <clears throat> it's certainly the case that these technology companies have a business model that's uh, unusual, um, network effects and so forth and so on. Funnily enough, um, a lot of the issues for economists trying to measure things um, and the business models are in the United States, at any rate, a bit like TV companies. Their output could be multiplied, and it was the consumer who bought the TV set, and they just had more and more audience. Their service was free at the point of use, as much of the um, you know Google and, and so forth. Um, but they made their money from advertising. And but they were much smaller share of the overall market than we have now for for these companies who are capital light and actually labour light. Um, but you know, there's always a change in the structure of the uh, stock market. Um, go back 20 years at any period, you'll have seen that you know 20 years previously there were a lot of companies around that aren't around, or or the big companies are just not there anymore. So I think there's always been this change. And I think that the fundamentals, as uh, as both Simons have said, of you know earnings, cash flow, discounts. I mean, that's really what uh, valuations are about. And uh, the big uncertainty is, as I say, coming back to what level of bond yields we're going to end up with uh, in a few years' time. And I think there's more uncertainty about that. Well, if you knew what that was, you'd have a better idea about what the stock market's going to be. And I didn't ever expect that with the size of budget deficits, the level of inflation, that you'd have nominal bond yields at this level. If you told me that this set of economic circumstances were existing, I, I'd, have, I'd have just not believed you, even if five years ago. But it's a curious combination, uh, a set of circumstances that would normally be expected with rising, ever rising bond yields, uncontrollable bond yields has got these very well-behaved uh, level of bond yields. And if it's all due to Chinese saving, that that's retreating as a dampening influence. But we have to be a bit humble and recognise that if we didn't expect things to end up here, we can hardly predict with any confidence where they're going to go. Thank you. Uh, Simon Edison, you've, you've spoken in your earlier remarks with some positivity around the uh, investment case for some of those large tech companies. But is it a new, is it a new paradigm or is it that they're just becoming grown-ups? Um, well, they're very unusual companies in how profitable they are, um, but also how strong their balance sheets are and what they they have a massive return on invested capital compared with traditional companies. Um, and and as Stevens pointed out, they're they're very large chunk of the global index these days. So the, the one other comment I'd make, a lot of people like rolling out charts of equities versus bonds going over decades. They're very popular, but of course, you take uh, the equity market index from the last time there was inflation, 20 years ago, 30 years ago now, 40 years ago, I suppose. Uh, the big companies in the world were Exxon and General Electric and uh, General Motors. And they all had one thing in common, massive amounts of debt. <laughs> um, the big companies in the world these days had one thing in common, massive amounts of cash. Um, the other thing they had in common was very, very low margins and rather high um, exposure to rising energy and labour costs. <laughs> the big companies these days just don't. So if the ratio of valuations of an equity market to the bond market looks a bit high to equities, um, one could explain it just by saying, well, those equities can cope with much more adverse economic circumstances than equities could on average in the past. And yet you look at the valuation of equities, equity markets at the moment yield a lot more than bond markets. Whereas in those days, equity markets used to yield a lot less than 
So that seems to me to be completely the wrong way round. You know, if, if the average yield of equities, which at least give you some sort of protection from inflation because they're real assets, and that's a bigger argument. But if the average yield gives you a better running yield, despite these companies investing for growth than the bond market, that, that's a very... That's not a world where I'm going to worry about equities. I'm going to worry about bonds a lot before I worry about equities. Thank you. Okay, guys, uh, last last question and, and relatively uh, relatively brief answers, please. How can one? How can an investor think about and prepare at a portfolio level for esoteric risk, whether that's something even madder happening in the pol- political world or a public health uh, emergency? How, how can one do that, or does one just have to? wait for it to happen. Uh, Stephen Bell, it's probably appropriate to start with you for that one. I think you've always got to be flexible in your uh, understanding of what the drivers are. Obviously, this pandemic has been a dramatic deviation. I've never spent um, weeks listening to um, vaccinologists um, as a guide to investment before. So that's the first point, is be flexible and be nimble and just try and make sense of a world that's increasingly complicated. That's the way that I uh, like to do it. And I think one of the advantages um, from an investing point of view is when the world is in turmoil, there are more opportunities. Um, You know, you can think very sadly of the um, ill effects of this turmoil, whether it's a a natural disaster or or an economic disaster, but um, it creates opportunities. Things get mispriced. And uh, one of the most extraordinary opportunities last March was the Treasury market started falling apart, which was very unusual. So I think there's always an upside to, uh, to difficulties in, uh, in financial markets. Thank you. Uh, Simon King, how, how would you, how would you uh, think about that? Is, is, is it something that you can think about at a portfolio level? Um, I mean, you can. I mean, I, I mean my, our issue with, you know, esoteric, I think the definition means that at least someone understands it. I would go as far to say as at the moment no one understands it. So, you know, try, again, trying to second guess that I think is, you know, a foolish approach. Um, and indeed, I mean, if you look back, I mean, you could have been very bearish on COVID when it started uh, and obviously proven to be very right. Um, and if you'd gone bearish on the market, you would have lost a lot of money. Um, so, you, you know, you can spend a lot of time trying to figure it out, but, um, you know, you're also trying to figure out the way that other people are going to react to it. And that's a very, you know, a very difficult task. I mean, I think in terms of portfolios and certainly what we recommend to clients at the moment, you just, you just have to run a balanced approach, um, uh, you know, which is something we've done for the last, last two years. Uh, and I see no reason to change that at the moment. Thank you. And... Simon Edelston, as the equity guy, you're probably on the, you equity guys are on the front line if this, uh, if something esoteric happens, because the other guys, I suppose, can do bonds, gold, cash, etc. But you're, you know, you're, you're right there. How, how do you, how do you think about that question? I'm, I'm delighted I can't because, you know, from what I see, I mean, the, the really heartwarming thing about the last five years has been how well the companies that we've selected for the portfolio have done, despite the following. Um, Trump, the pandemic, interest rates being set at a bizarre level, a bit of inflation, and China going quite a way back towards um, being a bit more left-wing. I mean, the companies are amazing things. That you know, well-run companies have proved their mettle, and I'd stick with them. 
Thank you very much for that, Simon Edliston, and thank you to Stephen Bell, Chief Economist at BMO Global Asset Management, Simon King, Chief Investment Officer at Vermeer Partners, and Simon Edliston, Global Equity Fund Manager at Artemis. And thank you all for listening. Tune in next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.